Welcome to Mill Creek Church in Belleville, Texas, where our worship service is in progress. Today, Pastor Monty Bird continues with his sermon series on the Book of Romans. And now, Pastor Bird. Join me in prayer, please. Father, as we approach your word this morning, I just pray that you continue to speak to us through the letter to the Romans. I pray, Lord, that you would mold us and shape us in your sanctifying power and that we would be servants in your kingdom. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, turn with me to Romans 16 in your Bibles. And as we continue to come to our conclusion of Paul's letter to the Romans, we're going to do something that I have never done in my history of expository preaching We are going to study 16 verses in our sermon, and I promise you that you won't be dismissed next Tuesday. (laughs) And as we begin chapter 16, the first 16 verses are typically verses that you skim over because they are primarily filled with greetings to those believers in the Church of Rome who Paul has a personal relationship with. However, I think if we look at these verses within the confines of the local church and broader Christianity, we will find a worthwhile meaning for us today. And so I'm not going to read all 16 verses, so you'll need to keep your Bibles open because I will refer to them throughout my remarks But before I begin, let me preface my remarks with this statement. The design of the church by God himself is for believers to come within a body and exercise their gifts that were given to them by God within the local body of the church. That is the design of of the church. And if you keep that as a preface with my remarks today, as we look at the greetings, everything's going to make sense. And so if you think about Romans 16, Paul uses several metaphors in describing the local church, and they all fit with his description of people that he knows. First of all, one metaphor that Paul uses throughout his letters is that he compares the Christian community, the Christian church, to a body. And you see that in 1 Corinthians 3.9. Paul wrote to the Corinth church, For we are God's fellow workers, you are God's building. So the metaphor in this case is a building. For you are God's fellow workers, you are God's field, you are God's building. Peter also uses that as a metaphor. In 1 Peter 2, verse 4, he wrote, Coming to him as a living stone, rejected indeed by men, but chosen by God and precious, you are as living stones, are being built up a spiritual house. So there you have the metaphor of the building again a spiritual house, a holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. 
Therefore, it is also contained in the scripture, Behold, I lay in Zion a chief cornerstone, elect, precious, and he who believes on him will by no means be put to shame. So in both of these examples, the metaphor of the local church is a building. Whether in Paul's case, God's building, or whether in Peter's case, a spiritual house. But then Paul also used the metaphor of a body. And if you turn to 1 Corinthians 12, verse 20, as he describes the church, he says, Now indeed there are many members, yet one body. In the eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you. Nor again the head to the feet, I have no need of you. No, much rather than these members of the body which seem to be weaker are necessary. And those members of the body which we think to be less honorable, on these we bestow greater honor, and our unpresentable parts have greater modesty, but our presentable parts have no need. But God composed the body, giving greater honor to that part which lacks it, that there should be no schism in the body, but that the members should have the same care for one another. And if one member suffers, all the members suffer with it. Or if one member is honored, all the members rejoice with it. So here Paul's telling the Corinth church that it's no accident that we're all together, that we all come together with a common belief in the Lord Jesus Christ, and we've been given spiritual gifts And it's our responsibility as members to exercise those gifts for the benefit of the body. And the reason why I bring this up, these two metaphors, one the building, the other the body, and the fact that the church is working together. In fact, you could make the argument that most of the Pauline epistles are written to a church. There's some that are written to an individual. But the vast majority of those are written to a church. So there's a purpose in the church. And we're called together. And so we're compared to a building. We're compared to a body. And this isn't just a theory. This isn't just a theory. Romans 16, as we get a glimpse into first century church life, it proves that... There are many people, there are many people working for the kingdom of God that are believers that are in the body. And that's what I want to spend my time on this morning. Because I will say to you that you cannot have an active and vibrant church unless you have People working in the church, exercising their gifts for the furthering of the kingdom of God. You have to have that. And you see this as Paul is writing his letter to the Romans and he's concluding his remarks. So if you look at the beginning of the chapter, starting in verse 1. He first mentions Phoebe. He says, I commend to you, Phoebe, our sister, who is a servant of the church in Sincrea, 
that you may receive her in the Lord in a manner worthy of the saints and assist her in whatever business she has need of you. For indeed, she has been a helper of many and myself also. Why did he mention Phoebe first? She's delivering the letter. In other words, we wouldn't have the letter to the Romans unless it's delivered. And that's what Phoebe has just done. She is bringing the letter. Now, where she's from is just a little bit away from Corinth, where Paul wrote the letter to the Romans. And here she had taken a journey to deliver the letter. Now, let's put this into context, because I think that this is important. There's no cars. There's no planes. You're either in a wagon, you're on foot, or you're in a boat. Those are your three options. And so this is where geography makes a lot of sense or is important for us to understand what Phoebe has just done. From Corinth to Rome, as the crow flies, is 750 miles. So Phoebe takes the letter and takes a 750-mile journey to Rome. For a Texas reference... This would be like someone in Beaumont saying, hey, do you mind walking over to El Paso for me? It's about the same distance. Can you imagine how long that took? How dangerous that was? Not to mention that this was done by a woman in that day, which is not real safe in regarding to travel. But she takes the letter and she delivers it to Rome. And that's why Paul is saying, accept her. Accept her. If you look at the verse again, it says, Receive her in the Lord in a manner worthy of the saints and assist her in whatever business she has need of you. Indeed, she has been a helper of many and of myself. What was Phoebe's gift? You know, we don't think of these type of things, but this is a person that's exercising a gift, right? She's a helper. And helpers are needed. They're desperately needed. And here she said, I'm willing to give of my time, talent, and treasure, and I am going to take this letter of Paul, and I'm going to go on a 750-mile journey, and I'm going to deliver it to Rome. Definitely when Paul called her his sister, it has true meaning, doesn't it? I grew up in a church that that was the tradition. You called each other brothers and sisters. And that seems old-fashioned now to call somebody brother and sister. But when you really think about a vibrant church... And I know that you will agree with this. There's some people that we worship with together that they're truly our brother or sister in Christ. And that's what he's saying here. Why is that? Because they're together in common unity for the furthering of the kingdom of God. Well, our next couple is somebody that we're very familiar with. Priscilla and Aquila. And... 
Dr. Luke in Acts, as he wrote Acts, introduces us to Priscilla and Aquila in Acts chapter 18. And I think this is relevant as we look at the life of Paul as he's concluding his comments. If you'll turn with me to the 18th chapter of Acts, starting in verse 1. It says, After these things Paul departed from Athens and went to Corinth, and he found a certain Jew named Aquila, born in Pontus, who had recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla, because Claudius had commanded all the Jews to depart from Rome. And he came to them. So because he was of the same trade, he stayed with them and worked. For by occupation they were tent makers. And he reasoned in the synagogue every day and persuaded both Jews and Greeks. This is how he first met the couple. They had the same trade. They were laboring both in work and in belief and in faith. He had a special relationship with them. So much so, look back at Romans 16 and look at how Paul described them. He said they risked their life for him and his ministry. They stuck their necks out. That's how Paul wrote it. These are special people that have a common belief with Paul. Also, if you look at the verse in verse 5, it says... They also have a house church. It's safe to say when he says that they are his fellow workers. That Paul really means it, doesn't he? Just just as when he said that Phoebe was his sister. He doesn't mention that casually. And I'm sure as he's referring to Priscilla and Aquila, he goes, as his fellow workers. There's a special bond there. There's a special bond. This isn't just a theory. Christianity isn't a theory. It isn't an intellectual acknowledgement. It is life-changing to where we're transformed and we have been saved to do good works. That's what the Bible says. We've been saved to do good works. Now, if you look at the rest of the people in the list, I want to point out two commonalities. The first commonality is is their common belief in Christ. Look at Epinetus. First fruits to Christ. He's the first believer in his region. Andronicus and Junia says they were in Christ before me. It goes on, my beloved in the Lord, our fellow worker of Christ, approved in Christ. Verse 10, in the Lord. Verse 11, in the Lord. Verse 12, in the Lord. Verse 13, chosen in the Lord. This is their common identity is a belief in the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, we were talking about this last Wednesday as we were going through 2 John. In order for there to be a group, and I'm talking about a group of any kind, in order for there to be a group or an organization, and for that group and organization to be effective, there has to be a commonality. In other words... 
you don't have people showing up to a motorcycle convention on a skateboard, right? There's a commonality. And you can look at any group that's formed, there's a commonality. There's car groups, there's motorcycle groups, there's sporting groups. Whatever group, there's a commonality. With the church, the commonality always has to be Jesus Christ. And here you see it as he is going through his greetings. He's saying that I have a commonality with the people of the church of Rome that I know. And that commonality is the Lord himself. That is his definition. But there's another commonality. If you look at these verses, and as you scan the verses, let me just read some of the ways in which Paul describes his fellow Christians. Labored for us, fellow prisoners, fellow worker, labored for the Lord, labored much for the Lord. What is the second commonality? They were active in their faith. They were active in their faith. It went beyond the intellect. It went beyond that. It went beyond the acknowledgement that Jesus is Christ. It was people coming together with a common belief and with the recognition that the world needs Jesus Christ. Would anyone argue with that statement today in the society in which we live? No. Education isn't going to change the world. Health care is not going to change the world. Better laws aren't going to change the world. Politicians sure aren't going to change the world. The only thing that changes society is a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. That's it. That's it. Now, remember, Paul said that we are his building. And he also said that we are his body. That we are the body of Christ. Now, when we say body, we're not referring to a body of water. I'm going to Chicago tomorrow, and one of the things that I'll look at is is I will look at Lake Michigan, right? It's a body of water. Well, does it do anything? Well, not unless the wind kicks up or there's a rain. It's just a body of water. That's not what he's referring to. He's saying we are the body of Christ. We are his hands, we are his feet, we are his eyes, we are his mouth. In other words, we have been called to act for the purposes and the furtherance of the kingdom of Christ. That's it. So we can all look around and we can say, oh my goodness, society, society is horrible. We could say that every day, couldn't we? Do we have the answer? Yes, we have the answer. We know what that answer is, isn't it? It's Jesus Christ. Christ said that we shouldn't keep our light under a bushel. And unfortunately, over the last several decades, I would make the argument that the church has been 
too quiet. He also told us that we're salt. So the church is either the preserving agent in the comparison to salt, or we're the provider of the gospel in relationship to the light. In both cases, society, you either slow the decay or you have a revival in people's attitudes are changed. Now, we can pray for a revival all day long, and my friends, we do need to, because unless God is in it, we won't have a revival. But it also takes all of us exercising our gifts within the body of the church for the body to be effective. I think that this has been lost. In other words, we don't believe in a salvation by works, but we do believe that salvation works. Let me give you a verse. James chapter 2, starting in the 18th verse. But someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith without your works and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that there is one God. You do well. Even the demons believe and tremble. But do you want to know, O foolish man, that faith without works is dead? Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered Isaac his son on the altar? Do you see that faith was working together with his works and by works faith was made perfect? And the scripture was fulfilled, which said, Abraham believed God, and it was accounted to him for righteousness. And he was called the friend of God. You see then that a man is justified by works and not by faith only. Any poll that you look at, any census that's recorded shows that the American church is in decline. It's in decline. And you can argue demographics, that we're aging. There's a lot of things that you can make an argument for that might give some just logical credence. But I would argue that we're diminishing because the church has lost its fervor for a world to come to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. Because, see, it all has to be centered on Christ. It has to be centered on your love and appreciation for the Lord Jesus Christ. And when you love the Lord Jesus Christ and Christ is active in your life, and you're living out your life for Christ, and you're reading the Bible, and you're praying, and you recognize the joy that you have from daily walking with the Lord, you recognize that you are saved for a purpose. You're saved for a purpose. That's why you are in the body of Christ. So you were called... You weren't called just for a ticket to heaven. That's not what this is about. 
And unfortunately, the way that evangelism was presented for decades, it was come to church and get your ticket to heaven. It wasn't come to church and have a relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. And when you recognize that you were saved to have a relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ, he spilt his blood so that you would have a relationship with him. And in that relationship, we're called into the body. And remember, not a body of water. So you are either a foot, a hand, an eye, an ear. You have been called to serve You've been called to serve. And as I've been preaching on over the last several weeks, not only am I concerned about the church in America, I'm concerned about our church. As we look at our church, because we are a graying church. We're a graying church. You can go to New York and you can walk the streets of New York. And as you walk the streets of New York, there are these beautiful cathedrals. Absolutely gorgeous. And if you start looking, you'll notice that there's a sign up there, typically, in front of these beautiful churches that at one point had been packed, been packed. And they're asking for money for people that are just walking by. And the reason why is, is that there's not enough people to pay for the upkeep of the church. It's beautiful. Kathy and I, when we were young married, we went to a large church. And I served there. I taught Sunday school and I served on a couple of committees. And at one particular point, they said, well, we're having a meeting and it's in the educational building. This is the floor. Be there at four o'clock. So I got there and let's say it was floor three. I went to floor four. I didn't know floor four existed. The reason why I didn't know floor four existed is that the church, which used to be packed, they closed floor four off. There was no need for floor four. In fact, I met an older person that when they were young married used to go to this particular church and he told me that they used to have to get there early so you could get a seat, that there were so many people... There was a balcony all around the church. And the only people that I ever saw that sat up in the balcony were some teenagers who really didn't want to be down by their parents. And we could argue that the church is in decline in America. We could make all of those arguments. But the one thing that we can counter is, is to say, I am going to do my part within the body of Christ. I'm going to do my part within the body of Christ. We've all called to act our life out in faith within the body of Christ. That is a basic theological point that we've been called into the body to act. And as I get older, I start looking around and realizing more and more often that that's really the only thing that counts. As you all know, I am a reader of obituaries. My grandmother got me started on that. I've just kept it up. I was in Colorado several weeks ago, and I went through the obituaries, and it was unbeliever, 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 no Christian funeral, no Christian funeral. I read through about five or six. I think there was one Christian funeral. 
I thought, well, thank God there's one person here. And the rest of the people were known by their hobbies. That was the identifying factor in their life. This was the hobby. This was the thing that they enjoyed doing. It was their hobby. I've had the privilege of looking at some obituaries that they were identified by their faith. This is where they went to church. This is what they did in the church. I've told this story before, but I knew this man in Baton Rouge. He was in his 80s. He had been to the same church since he was 13 years old. And he just didn't intellectually acknowledge Christ. I found out that he passed away and I thought, I'm going to be there. His family looked at me and they said, I can't believe that you drove. I said, I wasn't going to miss this. He was just a dedicated believer to the Lord Jesus Christ. And I sat down in the church and there was somebody in front of me, two young guys, and they said, why are you here? You know, typically old people, unless it's family, there's not a lot of young people in, in the funeral. And they said, oh, Howard, being the church greeter, Howard greeted me every Sunday. I had a relationship with Howard. I was going to be here. And the guy said, how about you? Howard was my Sunday school teacher in junior high. I was going to be here. Isn't that what we want to be known for? I mean, if you think about it, if you're writing your obituary, what do you want to be known for? Do you want to be known for your hobby or do you want to be known for your service in the Lord Jesus Christ? Because we all have a common day, don't we? We've all been appointed a day. We all know that it's going to be happening. And God saved you to act out your faith within the body of Christ. Luke chapter 10, verse 1 It reads, after these things, the Lord appointed 70 others also and sent them two by two before his face into every city and place where he himself was about to go. Then he said to them, the harvest truly is great, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. True today, isn't it? True today. If you're old enough, you'll remember this great solo song. My table is full, but my fields are empty. I love that song. For the soloist ask a question, who will go work in my fields today? God has chosen each and every one of us to work in his kingdom. Is it going to cost you time? Absolutely. Is it going to be convenient? No, it's not. Will you get a blessing for it? Absolutely. As we surrender to Him for the will and for the purpose in which He saved us. Join me in prayer, please. Father, we just thank You today for Your Son and for the sacrifice in which we have life. And I pray, Lord, that we might recognize that we were all saved for a purpose, that our faith needs to be faith in action, that it shouldn't just be an intellectual acknowledgement, but we should be burdened for the world to come to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. Lord, I pray that you'd use each and every one of us in the gift that you've given us, 
that we wouldn't just acknowledge, but we would express our faith and serve you. I pray, Lord, that if there is someone who's never accepted Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, that today they would ask for forgiveness of sins and they would repent and they would have Jesus be their Savior and Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for joining us as Pastor Bird continues this sermon series. If you wish to hear more, you may find him at millcreekchurch.org or go to sermonaudio.com slash millcreekchurch. Prayer requests may also be left at millcreekchurch.org. Our church services are as follows. Sunday morning Bible study is at 9 a.m., followed by our worship service at 10 a.m. We have Wednesday night prayer meeting and Bible study, and they are at 6.30 p.m. For more information and our mission statement, please visit our website, millcreekchurch.org.